Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Quake, a first-person shooter developed by id Software and published by GT Interactive back in 1996 for the Microsoft DOS, Linux, and Windows computer platforms, which would later be ported to the Apple Macintosh, Sega Saturn, and Nintendo 64 in the years that followed. We're going to be talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 19. I am pumped with what we're doing here. This has been a great time. I hope you're all having a great time as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how we're doing or have suggestions, comments, feedback about the show or episodes, or you have suggestions about new games to cover, I would love to hear from you. There are a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel so inclined, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear what you think and would love to have a discussion about Classic games, classic technology, the podcast, pretty much anything that might be on your mind, I'd love to have the discussion with you. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment and go over the general anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history and the historical context of the game in question. How was the game made? Why was the game made? Where does it sit in the overall context of video and computer gaming history? After we talk history, we go into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I say pseudo-review because it's not like we're assigning numerical values or ranking games per se, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? We also listen to the sound and music. How does the game sound? What are the sound effects like? talk about the narrative and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released? And we do all of that in order to come to a verdict as far as how the game holds up today. And once we reach that verdict, we assign a game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is just that darn good. It is a classic. You should play it today. It hasn't aged a bit. It is just as fun to play today as it was 20, 30, or more years ago upon release. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still awesome games. I still highly recommend you to play them. Uh, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you like the genre, you are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They don't quite hit that Pantheon level. They're just a little bit below the Pantheon, but still highly recommended to play. You should experience our Golden Oldies. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we get to the Mediocre Mentions. These are the games where it starts to become a little bit more challenging to recommend to the general population. They may have aged a little bit more poorly. They may have had a couple of things wrong with them to begin with. These games I can't really recommend to everyone. If you like the genre or you have some nostalgia for the game itself, certainly feel free to play. But these are not games that for the general population I would recommend. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. These games I cannot recommend to anyone. They may have aged incredibly poorly or... 
they just may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being the id Software shooter, Quake. Quake is a first-person shooter developed by id Software and released back in 1996 for a number of computer platforms and then ported to a bunch of other platforms thereafter, primarily originally released on the Microsoft DOS, Linux, and Windows platform, and then ported to Macintosh, Saturn, and Nintendo 64. Before we talk about Quake itself, we do have to start with just a brief history of id Software, and just a disclaimer, we have talked about id Software before. This is actually part four of our deep dive into id Software's early years. We already have had episodes on Commander Keen, Wolfenstein 3D, and Doom, Quake rounds out the early id Software years, so this is our fourth of four episodes on early id Software. So I'm going to go through a brief synopsis of id's history, just in case anybody hasn't listened to those episodes previously. If you want to get into a lot more details about those specific games and specifically around id's evolution over time, I encourage you to, to listen to some of those prior episodes because we go pretty darn deep for each of them. Anyway, id Software started as a group that originally met at a software distribution and subscription magazine called Softdisk Magazine, which was focused on publishing new games and sending them out to their subscribers. And the, the team that would eventually become id Software was responsible for, responsible for publishing a game every other month or so for the magazine. Eventually, through a confluence of events, they decided to strike out on their own to create their own games because John Carmack is a legendary computer programming genius, and he created a way for side-scrolling to be smooth on a computer back when this was all happening in the 80s and into the early 90s, but primarily at this point, the late 80s, there was no really good way for computers to have side-scrolling games like what you would see on the Nintendo Entertainment System with games like Super Mario Brothers. On the computer, it just wasn't a thing. John Carmack figured out how to do that, and with that technology in place, the team decided to form a separate company and create what would be the first Commander Keen game that would eventually evolve into six and a half episodes of Commander Keen goodness. That game revolutionized the platforming genre on the computer. And at this point, id Software was id Software, and they had done the two-dimensional thing, and they spent a, a fair amount of time on Commander Keen, and they decided that they were going to pursue some new technology. And John Carmack was at the forefront of that because he usually is at the forefront of technology. So he decided to move into more three-dimensional-like worlds. And I say three-dimensional-like because at this point, they were not truly three-dimensional yet. But he did start working on some first-person perspective engines, and that would culminate with the release of Wolfenstein 3D, which was one of their early first-person shooters and was probably their most well-known at the time first-person shooter. There were a couple of games that preceded it that acted as prototypes for the engine, but Wolfenstein 3D was a big deal when it was released. Once again, Carmack wanting to be on the forefront of technology, went back to the drawing board. He wanted to refine the Wolfenstein 3D engine to create something even better. 
So he went and he refined the technology. He added a bunch of new features like full texture mapping and improved the lighting system and improved the overall level geometry possibilities within the engine. And that would eventually result in the release of Doom. So id Software at this point has just released Doom. So we're going to start our discussion about Quake by basically rejoining id right after the release of Doom back in 1993. So following work on Doom and its sequel, Doom 2, the id Software team was at a crossroads. They had a mega hit on their hands in Doom, but they also realized that in order to remain at the forefront of the gaming industry, they had to continue to innovate. John Carmack, being one of the most influential programmers of all time, decided that he wanted a new challenge. So he set out to create a brand new, yet another brand new, true this time, three-dimensional engine for use in id's next project. So we should talk briefly about the difference between a 2.5D engine and a true three-dimensional engine. Because up to this point, Wolfenstein 3D and Doom... Even though as you maneuver through the game world, you have a pseudo three-dimensional perspective in that you see the enemies in front of you and you can navigate around and it feels like the walls are up around you. So it feels like you're in a three-dimensional world. You're not really. All of the maps were actually two dimensions and the way that it appeared to be in three dimensions was just the result of some clever programming tricks that Carmack was able to do that played around with perspective and made it feel like you were actually navigating a three-dimensional world. In the computer, they were not three-dimensional worlds. They were not three-dimensional geometry. Everything was still made out of sprites. There were no polygons in the game. It was all sprite-based still, which is primarily a two-dimensional technology. Everybody would walk around in these games with walls projected upwards, but if you ever look at the map, the maps were all two-dimensional, and the not just the visual of the maps, but the maps themselves, because there were certain limitations of the engine that would prove that out. You couldn't have rooms on top of other rooms in Doom and Wolfenstein 3D because the engine wasn't true 3D. It's impossible to have two shapes on top of each other in a two-dimensional plane because they'd effectively overwrite each other. In three dimensions, you're working with the height uh, axis, the z-axis, so you're able to actually have rooms on top of each other because they don't occupy the same spot in space because they're on different heights or they're at a different spot in the height plane. On 2.5D engines or two-dimensional engines, you just don't have that. So, with Doom and Wolfenstein 3D, all of the 3D was an illusion. None of it was actual three-dimensional technology. It was just a pseudo-projection of a three-dimensional view versus what a real 3D engine would give you, which is actually navigating a three-dimensional world. Three dimensions allow for fully realized height and scale across the entire world, which means you could have rooms on top of rooms. You could have appropriate perspective correction when looking around, real-time lighting, true texture mapping. A ton of stuff can be added once you go to a full three-dimensional engine. Now, the thing is, at this point in computer technology, true three-dimensional engines with a full six degrees of freedom, meaning that you can move forward, backwards, left, right, and up and down height-wise in a fully realized space, were rare. Even more rare would be a 3D engine that performs well on current computer systems, id Software was once again trying to define the future of technology as it tackled this challenge. 
With John Carmack hard at work on the new engine, the team had to decide what the concept behind their new game would be. And here, they actually looked back in their history. They looked back at their Commander Keen days. So, something we didn't talk about in the Commander Keen episode, and this is a little bit of an interesting tidbit that we did not hit upon. When the original Commander Keen trilogy was released, there was a short teaser for the game it thought it was going to work on next, which would have been a top-down fantasy role-playing game called The Fight for Justice. The game, partially based on a Dungeons & Dragons campaign that John Carmack had been running for the team, centered on a main character named Quake, who was a Thor-like hero who could pretty much destroy any enemy who might get in his way. Now, the game never ended up happening back when Commander Keen had launched, primarily because the technology of the time didn't allow them to deliver the type of game they really wanted to create. Despite beginning to work on the title in 1991, the team eventually put that on the back burner, with id focusing instead on continuing the Commander Keen series and also fulfilling their contractual obligations to Softdisk Magazine as a result of their improper use of company computer equipment and eventually creating the grandfather of the first-person shooter genre, Wolfenstein 3D. Now, however, the team had an opportunity to return to that original idea and create the fantasy RPG they had always wanted to create. So John Romero, who was id's big idea guy, began working on the design for this new title, which he envisioned as having a large, open 3D world that you could navigate from a first-person perspective. But upon encountering an enemy it would switch to a side-view, three-dimensional fighting game, similar to what you would have in Sega's Virtua Fighter series. Your fighter would have the ability to chain together combos, utilize weapons, and ultimately beat up your enemies in what would have amounted to a first-person shooter mashed together with a 3D fighting game. That actually sounds kind of interesting and awesome. That would have been a really, really interesting design to look at. And, you know, this whole concept of an open 3D world... This is not the first time that it has been thinking about this. We talked during our Doom episode about the fact that John Carmack originally, before Doom became Doom, he wanted to create a 3D world that was fully open world that you could navigate. The technology wasn't there at the time to have a a high-performing kind of three-dimensional world like that. So ultimately, he scaled that back a little bit, and what resulted was the technology behind Doom. But now... John Romero was going back to that idea, and he was saying, look, this is what we need to do. We need to create a fully realized 3D open-world concept for our next game. Romero began working on most of his design concepts in private, while other members of the team, including newly hired level designer American McGee, worked on more traditional first-person shooter design elements, effectively cloning the original format of Doom, albeit with new three-dimensional technology. Now, interestingly, American McGee became John Carmack's main tester for the new engine he was writing. In prior games, Carmack relied almost exclusively on John Romero to test out his engines and build in additional features that would help designers create future levels. With Romero heads down in his own design work, American McGee took up the mantle of Carmack's right-hand person, and the two quickly formed a close friendship. Carmack, however, was operating at an entirely different level than McGee, and pretty much anyone else on the development team. We talked before about the fact that Carmack was pretty much a computer programming genius, and despite American McGee and Carmack becoming friends, he oftentimes noted that Carmack's conversations with him would go entirely over his head. 
Now, that's not to say that McGee didn't have programming chops, but Carmack was just operating on another level. This ultimately is what led to id Software hiring additional people, and in particular, a savvy graphics programmer by the name of Michael Abrash to the team. Abrash had written numerous books on programming graphics for computers, and Carmack had actually read his work when he originally created some of his earlier engines. With the move to three dimensions proving difficult and having nobody on the team who he could talk to about this very advanced feature and the advanced problems that he was facing, Abrash provided a sounding board who could actually talk to Carmack in his own language and assist with the programming of the engine itself. As development and design tasks continued, there started to be numerous conflicts within the team. According to the design team, John Romero, who was the lead designer for Quake, he had a clear vision in his head. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what design he wanted to implement in the game. The problem was he wasn't doing a great job of communicating that vision out to the rest of the team. Several individuals indicated that Romero basically told them to just go build levels, but he didn't really give much more concrete direction than that, so it left them working without a sense of a singular cohesive design. John Carmack, meanwhile, continued to have difficulty creating his first true 3D engine, which was exacerbated by the fact that he was also developing new networking code for use in what would become the game's multiplayer. We talked about multiplayer a little bit in the last episode focusing on Doom. Multiplayer and deathmatch was a big thing in Doom, and Carmack wanted to evolve even on that with Quake. So he was working not just on a new graphics engine, but he was also working on a brand new network stack of just trying to make things even better from what he had in Doom. And that's an astronomical task to be working at both of those or working on both of those at the same time. Because of all of this, Romero became frustrated with Carmack because he believed that he couldn't fully realize his design vision without access to the underlying engine to build it in. Carmack, by the same token, became very frustrated with Romero because he expected him to act in a similar leadership position like he had worked with for Doom and Wolfenstein 3D. Carmack expected Romero to be giving direction to the team and driving a cohesive style for the new game. This didn't happen, and over time, Romero became more and more focused on continuing to spearhead new ideas for the game, but he didn't seemed to share those ideas with the rest of the team, so everybody was kind of working in a vacuum. With no formal direction coming from Romero, the rest of the level designers, who were Sandy Peterson, American McGee, and Tom Willits, went ahead and began building new levels using their own personal styles for the game. This meant that each individual would be creating levels based on their own likes and dislikes. So, while one person might like medieval castles and ancient kind of structures and knights and swords and things like that. Another might like a more industrial military-based kind of style, while another might prefer horror Lovecraftian kinds of elements. Everybody has their own likes and dislikes. Everybody is going to try to build levels and game design to match those likes and dislikes. And with nobody providing direction and saying, no, this is what we're going to do. This is the singular vision for the game. Everybody was off doing their own thing. So in short, the design for Quake was coming together, but it wasn't a singular cohesive design. It was effectively several different designs being created at the very same time. And Romero, the person who was supposed to be leading all of those design efforts, 
was still working in his own world. He was the idea guy. He had a ton of ideas. He was working on all those ideas. He just wasn't sharing those ideas with everybody else. So he kept trying internally to come up with new and innovative ways of bringing the world of Quake to life, or at least the world of Quake that he had in his head, but it wasn't shared with the rest of the team. Further creating issues and dissension within the team was the belief that Romero was spending most of his time playing Deathmatch while keeping very light office hours. So much so that the story is that Carmack eventually installed a time-logging program on Romero's computer to determine how much time he was actually spending working. It doesn't seem like anything ever came of that, but it is interesting to see how relationships were being strained during the development of the game. And this is something that stands in stark contrast to the early, early id software years. When we were talking about Commander Keen, when we were talking about Wolfenstein, when we were talking about Doom, this was a team that was gelling together. They had, they were pretty much focused on a singular vision for each of their games. Yes, there were some individuals that didn't really fit in or the team didn't really appreciate some of their feedback. Like we talked about last time, Tom Hall and his focus on narratives and stories, which the rest of the id software team said, no, we don't need story. We don't need narratives. We need gameplay, gore and violence. That is what we're trying to deliver here. That is our, that is the name of our game. Um, and Tom Hall didn't agree with that. So eventually he was let go from the company. But up to this point, the team had always seemed to work very cohesively. They always seemed to have a good time with each other. They were all very collaborative. They were just working and focusing on delivering the best possible product they could. With Quake, things started to get contentious, and it was not the same environment for anybody. There was a lot of conflict here. Eventually, all of the grand plans for a brand new design with open 3D worlds and one-on-one -on -one fight scenes with three-dimensional fighters and combos and visceral hand-to-hand -hand combat and pretty much everything else that was meant to build on and evolve the classic Doom formula, that all came crashing down. While the team may not have known all that Romero was working on, they knew that they wanted to create something different. They were trying to create something that was not the same as Wolfenstein, that was not the same as Doom. They wanted to create a wholly unique experience. One day, however, American McGee copied a bunch of Doom textures into the still-evolving Quake engine, and he playtested a level for John Carmack. And at that point, Carmack realized that more of the same, albeit with better technology, better visuals, better gameplay, better everything might not be that bad after all. Maybe they didn't have to set the world on fire and totally revolutionize the first-person shooter again. Maybe they could simply evolve on what they had before. What they had before worked. It was very successful. If it's not broke, don't fix it. So they looked at it, and, and Carmack in particular said, maybe we just stay with what we know, and we just improve it. We don't revolutionize it. So the entire id team held a meeting. After which, it was determined that rather than create a design that would innovate on the Doom formula, they would instead create a Doom-like game that would evolve the state of first-person shooters rather than do something entirely different. John Romero, as you might imagine, was extremely upset by this decision because the designs that he had been working towards for the last year effectively were all thrown out. The rest of the team had to do some rework as well, but because they never brought 
into and they were never brought into Romero's kind of design thinking and and what he was trying to do. They never understood what Romero's vision was. So their work, they kind of said, well, we're going to work on what we know. We're going to work on designs that more closely resemble Doom, albeit with different textures and modified weaponry. So because of that, yes, there was some rework when they decided to all get on the same page and focus in one direction, but not nearly as much rework as what Romero was going to have to do because at least they were adhering to what they knew, which was effectively an evolved design from Doom. So with the design now refocused on creating a more traditional first-person shooter experience, the team began redoubling their efforts to make up for lost time and they entered into a crunch mode that would last for seven months. So we should talk just briefly about what crunch mode is in the computer industry. Because if you read any computer gaming magazine or online magazine or or anything that covers computer gaming development, you will hear the term crunch, and that's used a lot across the gaming industry. And basically what it means is... A lot of times companies will have a hard deadline that they have to meet for a given game. Most of the time, the release dates for games are determined well in advance of when that release date actually is. And they have, all the companies that work on games, they have fairly detailed project schedules that get them from point A of idea all the way through to point Z of delivery to the market. The thing is that the end market date A lot of times the senior executives in these companies do not want to move that date, especially if the date has already been communicated out to the marketplace, to their consumers. If if the team tells consumers we're going to launch a game on January 15th, well, that game better come out on January 15th and everybody is expected to put in whatever time and effort is necessary to make that happen. And what ends up happening is the computer developers or the game developers and a number of the staff on the team go into this crunch mode where they are working insane hours to try to get the game and get the content done for the deadline. It is constant work. Work Work-life balance goes out the window. They spend, and I've read stories where people have spent 16 to 20 hours a day in the office working. There are people that sleep over in the office so that they don't lose any time with a commute. They basically give up most of their personal existence in order to make the game happen. Crunch time is a very bad concept, especially because it's not like it's a very short period of time. Sometimes sometimes whenever you're working on anything that requires a delivery, it doesn't have to be software. It could be anything. You may get to a point where you got to get it done and it's got to get done on a certain date. And maybe for a week or two, you put in some extra effort. You put in overtime hours and you try to get it done because you know it's a deadline and it has to get in. That's, you know what, that's just kind of business. Unfortunately, it is unfortunate, but sometimes that stuff happens. In the computer game industry, though, it happens, number one, a lot. And number two, their period of crunch is a significantly longer time. Looking at this example alone with Quake, the team entered a crunch mode for seven months straight. That is insane. Picture working 16 to 20 hours a day for seven months straight, and that oftentimes would include weekends. That is not an environment conducive to good 
uh, relations or feelings within a team or with family or friends. It just doesn't work that way. So the team, beyond all of the contention that they had had up to this point, now they are facing a situation where they are incredibly overworked. And it was right around this time that John Romero decided that after Quake shipped, he was going to be leaving the company to strike out on his own. In the interim, however, he focused on making Quake the best possible game it could be. So to his credit, even though he decided that he was going to be leaving after Quake released, he still put forth as much effort as possible to try to deliver and to make the best game he could. Part of Romero's earlier design had been the idea and concept of a large, interconnected 3D world with levels that would seamlessly load into each other and, and would lead pathways across into different levels, and it was all interconnected. Realizing that each of the designers on the game had effectively created their own stylized maps, Romero decided to go back to the traditional episodic style of first-person shooter, where each episode would be a collection of levels. In this case, though... Each collection of levels would effectively represent the design stylings of an individual designer. So in that way, you would have multiple episodes. Each episode would have different styles. So one episode might be industrial. One episode might be medieval. One episode might be horror-themed. And within those individual episodes, you would have consistency. So the levels within a given episode would be consistent. The individual episodes would not necessarily be consistent with each other, but because they were separate episodic content, it was okay. And that was actually a way, and I thought this was ingenious, it was a way of masking the fact that you had incredibly varied designs across all of these levels by bundling them together into episodes and keeping the episodes themselves consistent, at least within the internal structure of the episode, it hid the fact that all of this was designed separately and apart from each other. So I thought that was a really interesting way of trying to draw cohesion or drive cohesion in a design that was inherently not cohesive. To tie all of these episodes together would require a new innovation implemented by John Romero. Rather than selecting your difficulty level and episode via an on-screen menu, and typically the way first-person shooters would work, is when you started a game, it would present you with difficulty options, it would present you with an episode selection, you would pick it from there, and the game would load into that episode with that given difficulty level. Instead of doing that, Romero designed a hub level where you'd navigate different hallways to select your difficulty, and then further navigate different rooms to select the episode you wanted to play. You could still play episodes in any order, similar to what we had in Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. In this game, though, you had to beat every episode before you could finally tackle the big bad boss of the game. So even though a lot of Romero's earlier design aspirations would be dropped, he still found ways to innovate within the confines of a more traditional first-person shooter experience. As the design progressed, attention turned to music. In prior id Software titles, they worked with a man named Bobby Prince to create each game soundtrack, and Bobby Prince had worked with id Back on the later Commander Keen episodes, he also worked with them on Wolfenstein 3D as well as Doom. And Prince was known for creating highly memorable tracks for every level. So much so that I can guarantee almost anyone who played the original Doom can pretty much on command hum the first level's theme immediately. Try it out. See if you could do it right now. See, I knew it. 
Everybody who's played that game knows that first episode. Episode one, map one, that theme is iconic. And Prince was known for creating these iconic, memorable themes. However, the id software team wanted to do something different for Quake. They didn't want to have necessarily memorable themes for each level. They wanted to utilize a more ambient industrial soundtrack that created more of a scary horror kind of soundscape. They didn't necessarily want individual tracks that would be front and center during gameplay. They didn't necessarily want people just remembering the music or being able to hum the music. They wanted to create a true auditory environment that was immersive and didn't necessarily distract from the core gameplay loop. So to compose those tracks, the team was able to partner with the well-known band Nine Inch Nails, fronted by Trent Reznor, to create the game's soundtrack and ambient industrial effects. Nine Inch Nails had actually been fans of id Software, and they often played competitive Doom Deathmatch while on their tour bus. One day, the band invited the id team to one of their concerts, and after that, they all hung out together following the concert. They struck up a mutually agreeable deal to create the soundscapes for Quake. The id team, in a show of appreciation, embedded the Nine Inch Nails logo into the game world, with the iconic NIN symbol of the band appearing on nail gun ammo containers you would pick up throughout the game. As development continued, various tools were created to assist designers in the creation of game content, with one of those tools being a powerful scripting language known as Quake C, which would pave the way for internal id designers to create brand new effects and capabilities within the Quake engine without the need to continuously redevelop individual pieces of functionality. So this was based on the very uh, common and commonly used language C, which preceded C++. So if anybody knows computer programming languages, that's where that origin is, or that's the origin of that name. We could talk about computer programming languages forever if we ever wanted to, but that's probably a little bit too uh, nerdy for most listeners of the podcast. But if anybody ever wants to talk about it, let me know. I actually went to school for computer science, so I know a thing or two about uh, programming. Regardless of all of that, forget about the the nitty-gritty details of the technology, finally, things were moving along. But even with forward progress, the team continued to be at odds with one another. According to many people, while they all believed in the game they were creating, nobody was having a particularly good time creating the game. There was just too much contention, too much conflict, and absolutely no free time to do anything else other than worry about completing the game. Despite all of that, finally, after a prolonged development cycle, Quake would release to the public on June 22nd, 1996, following an initial shareware release earlier in the year, whereby individuals could play the first episode effectively for free. For anybody who may not be aware, shareware is a model of software distribution, or was a model of software distribution, where you would effectively get the first episode of a game for free, And then assuming you liked it, you would send money or call in and pay money over the phone to receive the additional episodes or the second or third or second through sixth or however many episodes were left. You would receive those episodes after you make that payment. So it was kind of a try before you buy kind of situation. And a lot of first person shooters in the early 90s, even into the mid 90s, would utilize the shareware software distribution model to get people 
kind of exposure to the game and then ultimately hook them so much that they had to pay for the rest of the episodes. Interestingly, and something very interesting I found with the Quake Shareware, the earliest versions of the Quake Shareware episode contained not only episode one of Quake, but it also contained the rest of the full game, along with some of id's earlier titles. All of them were included on the Shareware disc, and there was good reason behind why id did this. The thought was that when individuals would call id software to pay for any of those titles over the phone, they would give they would get a code. The person on the other line, the salesperson, would give the individual a code that you would then put into your disc or into a menu uh, on the disc to unlock the game that they paid for. Now, unfortunately for id, they didn't quite realize how easily it could be cracked. And in a relatively short period of time, someone had created a program that effectively allowed anyone to crack the uh, install program and be able to install all of id's software catalog for free just using the Quake shareware disk. Needless to say, id removed that functionality pretty quickly, and future versions of the Quake shareware did not have all of those games on it. I do want to say, the version of the Quake shareware I have, I actually do have the Quake shareware version that has all of that, all of those software packages on them, and the Quake Crack is actually still available online today. So technically, if you didn't own these games separately, and it was literally id's entire catalog at that point, you could you could pretty much get them all for free. Now, I'm not saying that it's legal, but you could do it. So I can understand why id would remove that functionality from future versions. I'm not sure exactly how many of that particular version of the shareware are out there in distribution, but... It's definitely, it's definitely a pretty good number because they were pushing pretty hard to get people hooked on Quake. Regardless of that shareware snafu, though, upon full release, Quake received almost universal critical acclaim, with many people praising the game's graphics, sound, and gameplay. Players were similarly wowed by the new game, and communities called clans quickly sprang up around the game's multiplayer mode. It was, similar to Doom from a couple years earlier, a cultural phenomenon. After Quake's initial release, there would be even more innovation driven by the game. The original incarnation of Quake still utilized software-based rendering for its graphics, meaning that the computer's central processing unit, or CPU, did a lot of the heavy lifting for both game logic as well as graphical elements for the game's world. Around a year after release, however, with 3D accelerators becoming more prominent, a version of Quake utilizing the OpenGL graphics framework was released, allowing individuals with a 3D Accelerator card the ability to enjoy a graphically enhanced, incredibly smooth Quake experience, unlike anything that was available previously. This version of Quake would become a showcase for 3D acceleration technology and would serve as a benchmark against which numerous future titles would be measured. I cannot overstate the importance and significance of OpenGL in the early 3D accelerator markets. Let's talk about that briefly. It's not specific to Quake, but it is specific to the technology of the time. So back then, 3D acceleration, having these 3D worlds, was still in its infancy. Most games utilize software rendering for their graphics, and that's where you would see the traditional kind of pixely graphics where you can very easily pick out the individual pixels on a texture and things looked a little bit blockier. 
Once 3D acceleration started to become more prominent, the visuals got a much smoother kind of look and you had much smoother textures and everything felt just much more put together. didn't necessarily see all of those blocky pixel elements. It just everything looked like a fresh coat of paint was applied across it. And back when 3D accelerators were just getting started, every 3D accelerator or most 3D accelerators had proprietary technology. So if a game was going to support 3D acceleration, it would have to build in support for the specific graphics chipset. It wasn't like we have today where everything runs off of standard kinds of APIs like DirectX or uh, Vulkan or, or whatever, or even OpenGL, I believe, is still around today. But those technologies, back then, most graphics cards manufacturers had very proprietary chipsets, very proprietary technology for a game to support those individual chipsets. They had to be programmed specifically for those chipsets. So if there were 10 different 3D accelerator cards, the game programmers and developers had to create 10 different versions or 10 different kinds of ways to interface with those graphics chipsets. OpenGL changed all of that because OpenGL was an open standard. That's why it's called Open, OpenGL, because it would then allow any graphics card that supported the core technology could then run any game that was written with OpenGL support. So very similar to today's DirectX, where basically anything that runs on Windows If it's running on Windows, it's running on DirectX, and if you have drivers on your graphics card, it's going to be able to run that game. may not all be able to run it all that well, depending on the power of the graphics card, but you can guarantee that you're going to have DirectX support with anything you install today. OpenGL started to drive those standards in the early 3D accelerator market, and Quake was one of the early titles to support OpenGL, which really helped to sell that technology. Quake was at the forefront of 3D acceleration, and with Quake now showing what was possible, 3D acceleration really took off after the release of Quake. And Quake, beyond its initial release, would be ported to numerous platforms over the years and would receive several direct sequels. Also significant for Quake was the modding community that formed around the game. And we talked about modding before, and there was definitely a large modding scene around Wolfenstein 3D, even larger modding scene around Doom, where tons of people were developing mods and total conversions for the game. It had always been a big believer in giving the players access to the underlying tools needed to modify their games, and Quake was no different. Because of the Quake C scripting language that we talked about a few minutes ago, individuals would be able to design a variety of modifications to the game, including brand new game modes, total conversions, the birth of Machinima as an artistic format, and countless levels to play either solo or with friends. Quake was where the original Team Fortress was created, and was also the main driver behind the Capture the Flag game mode becoming pervasive in nearly all first-person shooters released after Quake. It was incredibly influential, and the modding scene around Quake is what drove a lot of those innovations that would become staples of the first-person shooter genre. Beyond the critical reception, Quake would also go on to sell very well, with over 5 million copies in circulation by the end of 1997. As you might imagine, Quake definitely has a legacy. It spawned numerous imitators and was one of the earliest examples of a true 3D engine in first-person games. 
Conventions were created as a result of its popularity, including the id-sponsored QuakeCon, which is still held annually today. Even in 2022, there are still new levels being created for the game, and I'm sure even today, in 2023, there are still new levels being created for the game. There was just a remastered version of the original title, including several expansion packs and the original Quake 64 campaign that was just released back in 2021 for all modern consoles and computer platforms. This is still a game that is played today. They just added ray tracing, or a version just added ray tracing into the game recently to bring it up from a graphical perspective into fairly modern-looking graphics. It is still being, it's still part of the gaming culture today. Id Software itself certainly has a legacy as well, though its current incarnation doesn't really look at all like it did back when it was creating these classic games in the 90s. The release of Quake would unfortunately mark the beginning of the end of Id Software as we had known them, with John Romero simultaneously being fired and resigning on the same day, and numerous other staff departing afterwards. At present, Carmack is still doing tech things. Uh, he, he dabbled for several years in getting virtual reality technology off the ground and acting as the chief technology officer for Oculus. And he's now knee deep in the creation of what I can only assume will be Skynet level artificial intelligence programming. Seriously, the guy is just a genius. John Romero would go on to continue trying his hand at game development, but he would never reach the levels of success that his early work at id would enjoy. Beyond his time at id, he's likely best remembered for his work on the underwhelming first-person shooter Daikatana, which unfortunately used some pretty intense advertising to sell it as an over-the-top experience. It did not live up to those expectations. The rest of the id team has since scattered to the wind, with several having more success than others in various game development and design roles. It's possible we may never see another company with as rich of an early history as id software. A true pioneer in the field of computer technology and gaming, id brought to life many of the experiences that would shape the future of gaming forever. This might be the last time we talk extensively about id as part of this podcast, but the fact remains that their legacy and their contributions will live forever. We're now going to shift to talking more about how it feels to play Quake today. So just as a reminder, Quake was obviously a first-person shooter that was developed by id Software. And our discussion here, at least for this overview portion, is actually going to feel very similar to our discussion about Doom, because Quake is effectively the natural evolution of that common framework. And we just got done talking about how all of those grand design decisions that were going to be these massive revolutions to what had come before kind of went away and Quake became effectively a very well evolved version of Doom, but not necessarily something that was totally and wholly apart from what Doom was. So for Quake, similar to Doom, it was split across several different episodes. In this case, Quake had four different episodes, each of which had multiple levels that eventually culminated in a big bad boss fight. And very similar to Doom, all of those episodes would build on each other. And like we were talking about, the episodes were all designed 
pretty much independently from one another, which is one of the reasons why, as you go from episode to episode, the game starts to feel different. Each episode, more so than Doom and more so than Wolfenstein, feel different from each other. It's almost like you're entering different worlds and trying to deal with different enemy types in some instances, and and oftentimes the geometry and the overall design of each level is very different from each other. So Quake, more so than any of the other id Software games, really had distinct designs across their episodes. It was still, it still felt like a cohesive experience at the end of the day, but you could really tell that the different episodes were not just building on each other from a design perspective. They were kind of their own isolated, insulated worlds. The first episode of the game was released as shareware, like we talked about, that shareware had all of the other, or at least the original version of the shareware, had all of the other id software titles on them. And just as is usual, the first-person shooters, your goal here is to destroy everything on site. You are a Marine, and your goal is just to destroy everything. There is some narrative in place here, and it took the same kind of form as what we've seen in the past, where each episode, you would beat the episode And then you would have a screen that pops up with some narrative details and talking about what you just did and what you still need to do. But really, Quake is all about the gameplay. As far as difficulty goes, I always play these games on whatever the normal difficulty is. I think that that's, generally speaking, the way the developers and designers intend the game to be played. So that's usually how I play it. But as with many first-person shooters, Quake did have different difficulty selections in place. Now, the one thing I will say about Quake, though, is it was very interesting to me how both the difficulty selection and the episode selection were integrated into the game. Rather than having a menu, most of the time you would start a game, you'd see the menu, and you'd pick the difficulty, you'd pick the episode, and off you'd go. Rather than do that, John Romero had decided, which we talked about, to create a hub world where when you're selecting the difficulty, you have to navigate to the appropriate difficulty hallway, and that's basically how you pick how difficult the game is going to be. But he even went beyond that, and this is something I absolutely loved. When you were picking your difficulty and you were navigating this hub world to figure out whether you were going to pick basically what would be easy, medium, hard kind of thing, when you went for the harder difficulty section, the path to get to the harder difficulty was actually harder. So he built in difficulty into the difficulty selection. So you kind of got a little bit of a sense of what you were going to be getting yourself into even before you picked the difficulty formally. So if you're going over to the hard hallway and you have to navigate some treacherous traps already and you can't do it, well, maybe that difficulty isn't really for you. But I thought that that was just an ingenious way of representing difficulty in the game world, basically showing you what that difficulty was going to be like, at least very high level, or at least distinguishing it from the other difficulty hallways before you even pick which difficulty you're going to select. Weapons play a big role in any first-person shooter, and for Quake, it is no different. The default weapon for Quake was a shotgun, and that, to me, is absolutely awesome. Most of the time, when you have a first-person shooter, the default weapon is some form of pistol, or maybe even sometimes it's fists or some sort of melee kind of weapon. In Quake, the designers decided, you know what, 
you're not going to walk around with a wimpy pistol. That's not going to make you feel all that heroic. So they said your default, your very base weapon is a shotgun. And a lot of times, and I've told you guys this before, I'm usually the kind of player that utilizes a shotgun wherever possible for most of the game. I love shotgun. It always feels like it has the best bang for your buck. Uh, You get a lot of damage. Generally speaking, you get a lot of ammo for it. So it just, and it usually feels powerful. Shotguns are pretty powerful, especially at close range. So the fact that the default weapon in Quake was a shotgun, which is ultimately my favorite weapon in most of these kind of games, is just awesome. There were, however, some other noteworthy weapons that I want to talk about briefly. The grenade launcher in Quake is outstanding. One of the best grenade launchers in any game ever, from my perspective. I love how when you shoot a grenade, the projectile bounces around in the environment. And the sound effects that they included with the grenade, the kind of pinging noise that that sounds almost like it, it reflects perfectly off of the environmental walls and obstacles and things like that. It is just perfect. I also really enjoyed the nail gun and its evolution, the super nail gun. Super nail gun is is just nasty. It is a nasty, nasty gun to use on enemies. It's also dramatically better than the base version of the nail gun. You know, interestingly, in early designs of the game, there were plans for nails to actually lodge into walls and allow you to scale them, similar to how you might scale a wall full of mines in the original Deus Ex. Unfortunately, the id team could not get the dis- the uh, collision detection just right, so they scrapped the idea of allowing you to shoot nails into walls and then scale them. A- and then one other big weapon that they had in the game was the Thunderbolt, which was effectively a lightning rod of death. I don't know personally if I thought it was better than Doom's BFG. The jury is still out on that one. It was definitely a good weapon. Does it beat the BFG? I don't know if it really does. Regardless, though, the Thunderbolt is still a fun weapon to use. Uh, There were also a variety of power-ups sprinkled throughout the game world. Uh, Quad damage and super shield were my favorites in Quake because, and sometimes you can get both, which literally turns you into death incarnate, and you can destroy pretty much anything in your path. The quad damage is insane in this game. It just makes enemies explode, which... I mean, it's awesome, but it is just an insane power-up when you can find it. As far as multiplayer goes, I didn't play any multiplayer for this episode, but it still has a thriving scene. And some of the other uh, games that would follow from this adopted core mechanics from the multiplayer in Quake. One of them is the infamous rocket jump, which actually originated in Quake and was entirely not supported were not planned by the designers of the game. The designers didn't think to themselves, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to provide an opportunity for ingenious players to shoot a rocket and jump, and if they do it at just the right time, it's going to propel them forward and upwards and make them get to different areas of the level faster, better, whatever. They did not plan on the rocket jump being a thing. It was just something that because of how the physics for the game engine were created and because of how the interconnected system of weaponry, damage, physics, and inertia played together, the rocket jump became a thing. And once rocket jump was a thing in Quake, 
it had to be a thing everywhere else. So what was an unintentional side effect in Quake of the physics engine combined with the weapon systems and just the way the game worked became now a staple. Once again, another staple of the first person shooter genre that id in this instance, at least accidentally created. So before we get on to the more specific aspects of the game, like graphics and sound and story and all that kind of stuff, I do want to look at what the box says. Now, Quake is around that time frame where you were starting to get a lot more coverage for these games. So I would venture a guess and say, if you're buying Quake, you've probably heard of it before. You may have seen a magazine article or read a review on it. So it's probably not entirely an unknown thing at this point when you see Quake on the store shelves, but I still like looking at the back of the box because I find it interesting how different marketing companies would uh, sell their product or try to sell their product to prospective consumers. So for Quake, the back of the box says, Quake, from the creators of Doom and Doom 2 comes the most intense, technologically advanced 3D experience ever captured on CD-ROM. Features free and fluid motion, ambient sound and lighting, and unmatched multiplayer capabilities. Play with up to 15 others via internet, modem, LAN, or serial connection. And then some quotes. Quake is the biggest, baddest, bloodiest, and most atmospheric 3D action game ever conceived. By far the most addictive multiplayer action game ever. Quake looks like no other game and perfectly displays id's trademark fusion of nightmarish art and advanced technology. The vanguard of a terrifying new level of immersive interactivity. And finally, Quake overwhelms the senses. So, definitely a fairly strong sell for the game. Definitely relying and showing that id came from Doom and Doom 2 and those were its prior games and trying to sell it based a little bit on that heritage within the company itself. Honestly, it works because Doom and Doom 2 were pretty landmark titles and Quake was going to be no different, or at least they hoped it would be no different. So moving on, we're now going to talk about more specific elements of the game. We are going to start by talking about the graphics. So just for awareness, I played both the original DOS version of the game as well as the 3D accelerated version, because I wanted to get a feel for how both the software rendered version as well as the 3D accelerated version worked and how did it feel and how did it look today? In non-3D accelerated mode, the graphics looked fine. They were pretty pixely, but it still gave a great retro feeling. And there are plenty of titles today that try to recapture the magic of what that retro aesthetic is. 3D accelerator mode had advanced lighting, smoother movement. It almost felt like an entirely different game. And it looked amazing. It still looked amazing. A lot of people, by the way, and this is something that I don't personally agree with. There is generally a criticism against Quake that it's basically Fifty Shades of Brown, the game. It has a very limited color palette based on what a lot of people say. It's like you're walking through a bunch of different shades of brown. Yeah, okay. The color palette isn't all that diverse. It's not like you're walking through rainbow worlds or you're getting a lot of diverse uh, lighting and colors and things like that. But for me, it still worked. It worked for the game. Quake was not trying to sell itself on the vibrancy of the colors. 
it was a gritty game, and as a result, it used a gritty color palette. And I can't find fault with that. I think it's fine. I don't think that critique is warranted. Certainly, anybody who wants to feel however they feel can certainly feel that way. But for me, I don't think it's that big a deal. I honestly wouldn't have a critique in that area. I do want to also mention, as far as graphics go, the character designs for the game were spot on. And they could really invoke dread depending on what enemy you're encountering and how much ammo you have available. There are some enemies in this game where you encounter them and you know you're in for a bad time. And some of the enemies, some of them are just kind of terrifying. Like they don't hold up totally today because the technology wasn't there to have really scary, well modeled kind of creatures back then. But for what it was, I mean, it it worked and it was definitely certainly some of the monsters that were more powerful could definitely get you scared or at a minimum annoyed because some of them are a little bit tricky to deal with. But honestly, no complaints on the graphics, especially if you're looking at the 3D accelerated one. Man, when you saw this back in the 90s when it was released. So when when you originally play this game back in the 90s and you see the 3D accelerated version, It's like you just wiped Vaseline away from your eyes and suddenly you could see clearly. I'm not exaggerating. That is how impactful it was back then. Looking at the graphics today, they still look great. There's really nothing to complain about. I I enjoyed the graphics. I thought I thought everything looked well done. And like I said, the 3D accelerated version looked really good. Moving on to the sound and the music, it was just perfect. Literally perfect. Every weapon blast, every enemy growl, every piece of ambient music or sound. Nine Inch Nails absolutely killed it with the soundtrack and the overall soundscape for the for the game. They just they just knocked it out of the park. It is an auditory feast for your eardrums. It just everything worked with the sound and the music. And once again, the grenade bounce sound. That is a sound, and you wouldn't think that a grenade bounce would be able to achieve the ranks of iconic from a sound effect perspective, but the quake grenade bounce kind of is iconic. I can, I can picture, I can hear that in my head right now. I can hear that noise, that sound effect in my head right now. And if somebody tried to use that sound effect in a different game, I would immediately be able to pick it out and say, oh wait, that's the quake grenade. It's it's just it was just really well done. And beyond that, the music, all of the sound effects, just an amazing achievement in sound design. This was an amazing, just an amazing game from that perspective. Moving on to the narrative and story, there was some story here, very typical of other first person shooters of the time with Quake. The main story is effectively this. You've been asked by the government to collect four magical runes from each of Quake's four dimensions, which ultimately ended up being the episodes in the game. And if you complete those four episodes, you would be able to open up a portal to Shub Nagurath, which was the main boss of the game. After each episode, you'd get a bit of scrolling text that described the story up to that point and the next step in the narrative. It was all very interesting. I actually enjoyed the story elements that were in there and some of the lore that was being built. And I loved the fact that you actually had to beat the four episodes before you can get to the main boss of the game. It was all very interesting, but 
really, it was mostly just window dressing for the main gist of the game, which was the gameplay. And that's pretty common with first-person shooters in general, especially around this time. I appreciate that there was some narrative there to help tie things together and to give you some purpose and reason behind what you were doing. Uh, But the story in these kind of games, just that is not the focus of the experience. Still, I enjoyed it for what it was. Talking about playability and controls, this might be the earliest first-person shooter that actually feels like a modern game. And by that, I mean every element of modern first-person shooters that we have today you can kind of see to a degree in Quake. Quake had true mouse look. It had six degrees of freedom. You were able to jump. You're navigating through fully 3D environments. You could swim up and down and through through water. This is pretty much the standard, and it set the standard for how to design a first-person shooter control scheme. It holds up just as well today. I do want to mention about mouse look. That's actually not the default in the game, interestingly. The game does not default to mouse look. You actually have to put in a console command to enable mouse look in the game. Once you do, it feels great, and it feels like you're playing a modern game. So playability and control-wise, Quake feels as modern as any first-person shooter. Maybe a tad clunky, maybe just a little bit. I I don't even want to say that, though. It was just a very very good experience and it controlled well and it felt like you were playing a regular title released today albeit with a very retro kind of aesthetic because well hey it's over 20 years old so overall how did it feel to play today versus when it was released it still feels great it actually feels really good to play Quake. There was a smoothness of the movement, the animations. It was super fast gameplay. These feel like the same words that I used when describing Doom, but honestly, they kind of still apply. The only difference is that Quake did it better. Doom did a lot of things right, and Doom was a landmark title. Quake was a refinement to that formula, and it worked. It worked really, really well. Similar to Doom, there were secrets all over the place that you could spam your spacebar all around a level and try to find additional secrets and try to find different secret paths and extra ammo or armor or guns or whatever. It's just one of those things where I'm not a secret seeker. It's not like I'm ever going to try to find 100% secrets on a level, but I appreciate the fact that they're there. Like we were talking about before, pretty much all of the weapons feel great. Everything feels powerful. I love the fact that the shotgun is the default weapon and the shotgun itself feels amazing. The super nail gun, like we said, it is just a nasty weapon. It mows down enemies. It chews through ammo like nobody's business, but it just mows them down. And it is, it is like, if you want to go on a rampage, just get your super nail gun out, put on some heavy metal music and just go, go crazy, go nuts with it. It is a good time. And the grenade launcher, beyond the sound effect, which I've already told you how much I love that. The grenade launcher is just fun. I love the physics of the grenades too, how they bounce around and try to and try to like settle as they bounce through the world. I just loved everything about the grenade launcher. All of the weapons really were great. And the enemies here were terrifying, especially the shambler for me. <laughs> if you turn the corner and you run right into a shambler, you're you're in for a bad time. And The first time I encountered a Shambler in this recent playthrough, all I could think was, oh no, 
oh, I remember these guys. And then I was dead. But then I took things a little bit more carefully. And, and then I only died a couple more times at that part. And But I would die plenty of times. The Shamblers were tough. Shamblers were pretty rough in this game. There were some other enemies that were pretty rough too. But everything was well balanced. Every part of the game, every aspect of the enemies uh, were well balanced. But they were terrifying. They, they were pretty... Uh, Pretty terrifying because they were very difficult, or at least some of them were very difficult. Uh, this was one of the earliest examples of a true modern first-person shooter, and it still feels great today. So, overall verdict. Where does this sit? I think you guys can tell. This is obviously an entry into the pantheon of classic gaming. It is a true classic. It plays just as well today as it ever has, and it feels modern. That's something where we don't always get that as we're playing the games. I may say, yes, it controls as good today as it did before, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it feels like a modern experience. Quake, however, does feel modern. It feels like any other first-person shooter you would play, albeit most likely faster-paced and a little bit more brutal than a lot of the first-person shooters that are on the market today, except for those that are designed to mimic the feel of the original Quake. But Quake is just a classic. It's undeniable. If you've never played Quake, you've got to fix that. It took the the formula that Doom had created and it turned it up to 11. It improved nearly everything every aspect of the game. It may not have reached those revolutionary heights as what the original designs were, and it might have created a ton of contention for the id team and ultimately led to the id team fracturing and never being the same structure as what it was in its early years. Regardless of all that, and despite all of that, it is undoubtedly a member of the pantheon of classic gaming. It is just that darn good, and I highly recommend you play it. Go out, go play it now. I'm pretty darn sure you're going to have a good time. That was our episode on Quake. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing and what you think of the episode or the podcast in general, or if you have suggestions about future games or just want to talk about classic gaming and technology, I'd love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if you feel so inclined, I would love to hear what you think and have a discussion about whatever's on your mind. Before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on the Sega Arcade Racing title Daytona USA. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond memories or not so fond memories about that game. At the same time, I know you're probably listening to this episode on any number of podcast services, and if you do feel so inclined, I would love it if you left us a review. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think and trying to create the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to gather feedback and make sure that we're focusing on the right kind of content and we're delivering the content that you all want to hear. So if you feel so inclined, please leave a review 
This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. It's really all about trying to create the best possible podcast I can and taking that feedback. And if there are gaps or there are issues or there are things that we should be doing differently, let me know. I certainly have an open mind for making things as good as is humanly possible. We are still growing. We are still developing the community. This is almost episode 20. Next episode will be episode 20. It is hard to believe that 20 weeks just about has passed since we kicked off this podcast venture. I'm as excited as ever. I hope you are all excited as well. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Daytona USA. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>